Lord, I pray that we would just have time, our hearts would be stirred. I pray that there would be zeal for your house that would fill us, Lord. We would understand David's vow of unusual dedication. God, and what it means to walk that out in our lives. Ask this in Jesus' name. So these are actually notes that I prepared out of a class that I did on revival and intercession. So today I want to consider, I'm going to follow the notes today. thought I'd mix it up on you guys. <laughs> today I want to consider the unusual dedication required of those who desire to pioneer centers of revival and missions, like Jerusalem and Antioch, by considering the story of the revival centered in Asia Minor and Ephesus, and the commitment to unusual dedication Paul exhibited and made the results of Ephesus and the revival there possible. First, we'll look at the dedication of David, then faithful intercessors and proclaimers throughout church history who lived in unusual dedication, and then finally, the unusual dedication of David. And I want to highlight this point throughout the teaching today that you cannot have desired results without deep and costly commitments. And I think that a lot, of, a lot of times in my own life, I've felt very in touch with zeal, but people don't always, in a healthy way, articulate what zeal and desire will oftentimes cost us. Right? And there's this very interesting balance that we have to live in as Christians in knowing that the grace of God is what carries us through life. It's by grace that we're saved. It's not by works. Right? But there is an invitation to greater works that will be done by faith. But oftentimes, if you look at history, if you look at the lives of the, the apostles, if you look at the book of Acts, you discover that though we don't earn things, if we really desire something, it will at times cost us cost us unusual dedication and that challenge can be mysterious it requires us to respond to grace but there is always more available in God than what we're, we're touching and if you want to press into that more it takes perseverance it takes dedication it takes hunger and I would be misleading you if I didn't tell you that hunger, dedication, faithfulness, that are all costly, they do impact our results. Not always in the direct way that we expect. Otherwise, we would all just fast 40 days and then that would equal revival, right? And it doesn't always work that way. But as someone who's engaged with many 40-day fasts, like I was spending time with someone this past weekend who's basically a new believer. They their employ uh, someone they worked for his wife gave them a bible and they came from a catholic background but they read through the bible for the first time in the last two years and they're learning what it means to hear god's voice and we were having a conversation and they never spent any time with anyone that had fasted and they knew it was in scripture something that god had been putting on their hearts and i was just helping them to understand like a habit a practice of fasting abstaining from food in order to that uh, which in Western Christianity, it's an unusual thing. Most people don't have a regular practice of fasting. And so, you know, today's our fasting day, I'm fasting today. When we make that commitment, that costly commitment to fast, to skip meals, 
to subdue our flesh, our physical body. There is a nearness to God that comes through that practice. But it's done in grace. We don't strive to earn things. Uh, but we also have to know that if we don't employ ourselves in the pursuit of the Lord, the spiritual couch potato will receive less. So there's this tension, right? We don't earn it, but we also know inactivity is not does not equal godliness. And intuitively we understand this. I like this illustration. We love to use our microwaves because it's convenient, but it sometimes leaves your food tasting a little funny. Okay. And there's a truth to that. Like how many of you, if you have the chance to eat a baked potato that's cooked in the oven versus the microwave, sometimes for convenience, if anybody ever cooked a, a hot dog or a, or a potato in the microwave, I sure know I have. And it just isn't as good as what takes more time and sometimes a little bit more effort to, uh, to cook on. And what's the very best thing to cook on, McKenna? The grill master, right? Yeah, and the smoker. Yeah, the smoker. And you know what's great about the smoker? Yeah. Low temperature over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Best chicken I've ever had. <laughs> smoker. My wife made some ribs in a smoker. Mm-hmm. Those, they're good ribs for Father's brisket. Day. Brisket. brisket. Your dad's mm-hmm. going to have some brisket. We're having a little thing for. Her dad's having some of our leaders over, and he promised us some brisket. Looking forward to that. We all want to get rich quick, but Proverbs plainly tells us a hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. Lazy people are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. Right? These are just these are these are natural lifestyle principles, but in in the spirit, these things can be true as well. Said simply, it is a human nature to want something for nothing. However, seldom do we value, cherish, and steward that which costs us nothing. The wisdom of God is that the adversity of the process causes us to actually value and steward the outcome. Circle, underline, double star. We in we were doing this ministry with one race, and my heart oftentimes is just to give things away. But do you know that when you give away registration to things, for example... Oftentimes you have a lot fewer people come than register, right? Because they don't have any skin in the game. People oftentimes, it's the very rare person that appreciates something fully when it costs them nothing. So the desired result of God taking up a unique habitation in our midst, this idea of what I was speaking about earlier with you guys when we, we talk about the gates of our city opening and God's presence coming, whether it's in a sanctuary or in a city. It'll be costly to those who seek to pioneer it. For those who want to be the ones who usher it in, it will cost us everything. This unusual dedication will be necessary to produce the extraordinary results of mass salvation's lasting conversions, unusual miracles, unseen before in quantity and quality through church history, and a bride operating in phenomenal purity and righteousness. If we want results, we must make commitments individually and as a community. We do that in the grace of God. So before we get to the unusual dedication of Paul, as it related to Ephesus, Paul expended great dedication in Ephesus, and he saw a massive revival. Let's look at another man of unusual dedication to the power and presence of God, David. So scripture divide, describes David as a man having a heart of unique dedication to the Lord. The prophet Samuel says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, 
for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. God sought out David because he knew David was ultimately going to be after God. Jalen, I believe the Lord is seeking you out because God knows that you are a woman that truly is after his heart. McKenna, God interrupted the life of the course of the life of your family and brought you to Atlanta because there's something that he has for you here that's probably different than what you would have had in any other place. Abby, the Lord decided to send you here instead of Kansas City or some other house of prayer. You came across the country because he had some part, costly, right, to come here. Time, money, energy. Because God had something for you here that is unique. Marissa, you took an entire season off of work, right? You gave up all those paychecks. Let the angels in. And and Bethany, during your season of pregnancy, you know it's inconvenient, a lot of physical discomfort. We chose to be here, be in the presence of the Lord. So you guys all paid a price in some way to be here. And just commend you for that. And you did that because you valued this season and what you thought you would get in God related to it. I think that's a 10 on that. You valued that encounter and that intimacy with the Lord to such a degree that you made a sacrifice, each of you unique sacrifices, to participate and even though it's there's a sense that God's grace is what's carried you and helped you make those choices it also should be a reminder and a pattern for how we grow in God because if you want growth in the future there'll be costly things that you have to to sacrifice in order to have that growth so in Psalm 69 9 through 13, we get a picture of this as David declares. And this is the theme scripture for this message, where it says, Zeal for the house of the Lord has eaten David up. Psalm 69 9. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up or consumed me, and the reproach of those who reproach me have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, they became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment because I also made sackcloth my garment, and I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gates speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O God. So David is declaring his great passion for the presence of God. He chose to so deeply identify with the Lord that when the enemies of the Lord reproached the Lord, used the Lord's name in vain, it was as though they spoke poorly of David directly. David took people cursing God's name as though they had used his own name as a cuss word. And he mourned the dishonoring of God through humiliating himself and fasting and weeping. He so deeply mourned the dishonoring of God's presence and name that he chose seasons to wear sackcloth instead of royal robes. Imagine if people of influence, those 
imagine that the people of influence in David's day, those who sat in the gates, they despised him from his choice to humble himself in the morning. And the foolish drunkards in the streets mocked him in their songs. So from the least to the greatest, David was criticized for being a man who deeply cared about the reputation and presence of God. So David is saying the highest in society, the ones who sit in the gates and the drunkard on the streets, they all think I'm too extreme. They think I'm too serious about God. And David is saying, it doesn't matter to me what they think. I'm consumed with this idea there must be a place and a presence for God. His name must be honored in my city. And I know what it's like to be reproached by my own family members where they don't understand my particular career choice or they don't understand uh, what it is to live on missionary support or what it is that you know I don't get a conventional paycheck from doing real estate or being a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. There's a certain approach that comes with that where people don't, don't understand or, or would accuse you of being lazy or being a moocher or, or whatever those things are and being willing to say yes to what God has asked me to do regardless of its impact on my reputation because I want more than anything what God wants for my life and I want more than anything I want a, a dwelling place for God in my city. So David refuses to care how people respond to his humiliation because he knew that it was pleasing in the eyes of God. He declares, my prayer is to you. In essence, I'm living for the approval of God, and I know that you're listening, and that's enough. I can remember going to like certain family gatherings during times that I was fasting, and they're like, what is wrong with you? you know? And uh, But I had a sense of conviction that I was supposed to fast, and I just keep those, keep those commitments. We, first four years, um, my daughter's name it means moon. Her name is Amron. And the Lord gave us that name two weeks before he called us to the night watch. And it was a supernatural confirmation that we are supposed to do a season of the night watch. Without telling that whole story, we needed that confirmation because for me to move into a midnight to 6 a.m. schedule of being awake with my pregnant wife and to take the first four years of my daughter's life before she started school and actually raise her where she's on a schedule where she's awake till 3 a.m., that seemed nuts to my family members, right? But God supernatural, and she has such a unique blessing and anointing on her life, and I believe a lot of what God has uniquely done in her life is a fruit of the season of prayer that she spent in the night watch. There's a, a phrase, I think it's in Proverbs, says wisdom will be justified by its children, and what that means is you'll see the fruit of a person's choices and it will point back and, and it's by the fruit that you'll actually know the decisions that you made with wisdom. And I can see in my daughter's life what seemed pretty foolish and perhaps even irresponsible to someone else who didn't understand what the word of the Lord was to our family has actually been proven to be wisdom because I see good fruit and the dedication of, of my daughter's life in that season to the Lord. Um, it, it's present on her. Like this past week, I went down and ministered at this friend's church, and my daughter read the introductory uh, passage of Scripture. And a lady came up to me afterwards. She said, you said your daughter's 11 years old? Like, she was so composed as she was reading that she was like, I have grandchildren that are that age. And she just said, there's clearly a calling on her life. And she was like, there was a brightness. It was like, she was like, there was something on her. You know, and these were non-charismatic people, more like evangelical. And, and what it, she was experiencing was there was actually an anointing when my daughter read the scriptures. Um, and that that anointing was, she was trying her, her best to describe that anointing. and go. The, that anointing is on her life because of 
the seasons of, I think, fasting and prayer that we've committed to. We're actually doing our fast currently right now that we're doing. We're doing a long fast together. We're doing it as a family. So nobody's eating desserts. And uh, Elisha may be sneaking a dessert here and there. <laughs> but the other girls understand what we're doing. They're committed. And so, you know, I know that that seems, might seem foolish to people. Like, why would you, to, to, the, to the, you know, natural worldly mind, like, you're not giving your kids desserts so that they can cultivate their dedication to God. Isn't that a little extreme? But I know that that's producing a lifestyle that they understand that dedication to God is what produces. We don't want just average. Uh, we want spiritual transformation in our family, in our city. And there's some pretty heavy brokenness in my family and I want to be radical and abandoned to God and breaking free from that. I mean, there's, in the history of my parents alone, my dad was married four times and my mom was married three times. So seven marriages and my dad's final one didn't end in divorce. So six divorces between the two of my parents. You know, I'm the product of my mom's second marriage and my dad's third marriage. And I just go, I don't want that repeated in my life. I don't want that repeated in any of my children's lives. And, and I, I believe these are the things we contend for when we make these vows of dedication to the Lord. So point E, David refuses to care how people respond to his humiliation because he knew it was pleasing in the eyes of God. He says, my prayers to you. Psalm 132, we find a description of David's vow of dedication to the Lord. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So David made a vow, and his vow was essentially, his vow was essentially, Lord, I will live in extravagant commitment to you. I vow to the Lord, I won't go to the chamber of my house, meaning I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go be comfortable in my bedroom. I won't go to the comfort of my bed. I won't give sleep to my eyes until... Then in verse 5, he gives the goal. Until there's a dwelling place for God in my city. So David obviously isn't saying, I'll never sleep again. He's saying, I won't live in a state of business as usual. I won't build my own house. I won't attend to my own uh, ministry or business. Yes, I'll be responsible, but I'll be gripped with something bigger than that. Something that demands my commitment beyond my own personal needs and comfort and finances and household. He describes the vision that possessed him above his own comfort in verse 5. He said, I want to see a dwelling place for God in this city. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 132.5. So what does David mean by dwelling place? In the most literal sense, he's speaking about the temple that he was going to prepare for Solomon to build. But it was not a physical building that David longed for. It was the reality of God's presence dwelling in a unique way among his people. God is always with us in the sense that he's universally near to creation. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145 says, he says he sends the rain on the just and the unjust in the Sermon on the Mount. He indwells the hearts of all believers. He says, he promises with you, I'll always be with you and never forsake you. But what I believe David longed for was the manifestation that was seen in the dedication of the temple and the corresponding prosperity that came through the dwelling in the presence. It says in 1 Kings 8.10, So it came to pass when the priests came out to the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, and the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That's what David's saying. I want a manifestation of your presence in my city, and I'm not going to rest until it comes. 2 Samuel 6.11, The ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom 
the Gittite three months and says the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The evidence of God's blessing when people make commitments of unusual dedication. Though David would not be permitted to build the temple himself, his commitment consisted in more than just poetic prose or an altar call. He said, with great pains, I provided for the house of the Lord. And he goes on to list all the different finances, 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, bronze, iron, beyond weight, for there's so much of it, timber, stone too, I've provided. To these you must add, I have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, all kinds of craftsmen without numbers, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, and this is just the principle of David. He comes to this guy, Aruna, and he says, I'm going to buy this place in order to one day build the temple. And the, the guy says to the king, he says, you can just have my field. You can have the place for the, the building of the temple. And David says, no, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. And so he's, he's wanting to make a sacrifice. David was desperate to have this reality of God's presence and blessing in his personal life and the life of his nation. He was unwilling to go without it, unwilling to tolerate business as usual until the presence of God dwelt manifestly among his people. He was willing to give up sleep, comfort, food, money, whatever great pains it took. That's that First Chronicles twenty two fourteen verse. With great pains I provided for the house of the Lord. David was filled, consumed with zeal. Not for a building, but for God's presence. So this is the story of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to Native Americans during the 1800s. Well, 1700s, excuse me. And he spent hours in prayer laboring for their souls. Brainerd lived a life of hiddenness and obscurity. After four years of ministry, he died from tuberculosis at age 29. From all outward accounts, his life was not that impressive, but he's done more to influence modern missions than any other man through his commitment to fasting and prayer. Many church leaders have read Brainerd's biography, biography, and I just want to read these two little excerpts. It says, When he was sweating so profusely that all the snow around him was melting, he had tuberculosis, so he was coughing up blood. They described the scene. The snow was melted, it was red with blood, but Brainerd wouldn't let go because God would not let go of David Brainerd. He was crying out for the salvation of lost souls under the authority and unction of the Holy Spirit. Brainerd would talk about when that grace of travail would fall on him, he would go to preach and the power of God would fall in awesome, terrifying impact. He would preach to the Native Americans through an interpreter. And the only interpreter they could find for a period of time was a drunk. And the interpreter might be able to speak English, but he did not love Jesus at all. And he just did it because he needed the money. So Brainerd paid him, but it was the only guy who could speak both languages. And Brainerd would talk about the power of God hitting him in prayer. He would preach to a drunken interpreter. And the Spirit of God would fall in such awesome power that the Native Americans would be left wailing and weeping out of concern for their souls. Here's some actual descriptions from Brainerd's biography. It says, I withdrew for prayer, hoping for strength from above. And in my prayer, I was exceedingly enlarged. My soul was much drawn out as ever I remember into having been in my life or near. I was in such anguish and plead with so much importunity. Importunity just means insistence. That when I rose to my knees, I, I felt weak and overcome. I could scarcely walk straight. My joints were loose. Sweat ran down my face and body. The nature seemed as if it would dissolve. He prayed so intensely that he felt as though he could almost cease to exist and die. When I waked, my soul was burdened with what seemed to be before me. I cried to God before I could get out of my bed. 
As soon as I was dressed, I withdrew into the woods to pour out my burdened soul to God. So that's description of his prayer, his deeply dedicated prayer life. And then we hear the impact. Remember the idea is desire, unusual desire, and and then dedication. We want to see impactful results. It takes unusual dedication in order to see extraordinary results. It says, I stood amazed at the influence that sees the audience almost universally and can compare it to nothing more aptly than the irresistible force of a mighty torrent or a swelling deluge that was insupportable weight and pressure bears down and sweeps before it whatever is in its way. Almost all persons of all ages were bowed down with concern together and scarce one was able to withstand the shock of this surprising operation. So he's describing this atmosphere that is so full that it feels as though a dam breaks and the presence of God fills the room and people are so impacted by it that not one person was left untouched. Old men and women who have been drunken wretches for many years and some little children, no more than six or seven years of age, appeared in distress for their souls. It was apparent these children were not merely frightened with seeing the general concern, but made sensible of their danger, the badness of their hearts, and their misery without Christ. The most stubborn hearts were now obliged to bow. I remember during a season of outpouring, we had a prophetic word that it was going to touch the kids in the school that was hosted on location. I can remember the day that the Spirit poured was poured out on the students, which there were probably about 20 or 25 of them in a room, and they had a typical prayer meeting. The presence of God just swept in, and someone came in the prayer room and said, hey, something's happening with the, with the young people their ages, you know, 8, 9, 10. And I remember going back and walking into the walking into the trailer that we had over at our other location. And I remember being able to feel the presence of God coming off of like waves of it coming off of the room that they were praying into. And I walked in, I just turned my phone on because I had never seen anything like it. I mean, just weeping, travailing, crying out to God, not being led by an adult. And there was something supernatural that touched them and carried them in intercession for like several hours. And then it dissipated, but that was a, a, a touch of revival. And we've gone through seasons where we've touched moments like that, the unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the unusual manifestation of God's presence and power. And you can't make those things happen, but you can resolve in your heart to respond to the invitation of God. You know, it says in First Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the earth for one whose heart is fully loyal to him, that he may prove himself strong on their behalf. And I do believe God wants to release the manifestation of his power and his presence, just like he did it in the book of Acts. And I believe there are sovereign times when he will do that, but I also believe he is looking for the people who will prepare themselves for his visitation. And that's what we're doing here. Evan Roberts, he was a Welsh revivalist, he was 26 years old, so David Brainerd, 29, Evan Roberts, 26, and he was a former coal miner, a collier, and a minister in training. And he was the key figure in a revival in the early 1900s. And in that revival, over 100,000 people dedicated their lives to the Lord. And the movement spread across Great Britain and Scotland and England and estimated that over a million people were converted in Britain out of what was birthed through the Welsh Revival. And this is Evan Roberts' personal testimony. For years I prayed for the Spirit, and this is the way I was led to pray. William Davies, the deacon, said one night in the society, that's just a prayer meeting, 
Remember to be faithful. What if the Spirit descended and you were absent? Remember Thomas, what a loss he said. And I said to myself, I will have the Spirit. And through all weather and in spite of all difficulties, I went to the prayer meetings. Many times on seeing other boys with the boats on the tide, I was tempted to turn back and join them. Oh, the boats on the, on the tide. The temptation to go have fun with his friends instead of go to the prayer meetings. But no, he said. And this is the equivalent of us just saying, you know what, I'm going to pray. I'm not going to look on the social media. I'm not going to. I'm going I'm to make the internal choice to sacrifice something that's comforting, distracting, whatever the thing may be for you. It doesn't have to be this same radical expression. But what is the radical choice for you where you say, I'm consecrating myself to you, Lord, and I'm giving you something that's costly, whether it's the fasting of food, whether it's giving up a habit that's a false comfort, whether it's abstaining from something that you enjoy for a season, and going, I'm going to give myself to this in, in order to deepen my life in God and in prayer. There was a, there's a great book called the, Tor- uh, called the Cross and the Switchblade, which is the story of David Wilkerson, who was a minister, uh, I believe he's passed on now, but Teen Challenge, he started the ministry Teen Challenge, and, and he was somewhere in the Northeast, but the Lord speaks to him and says, I want you to turn off your TV, because he just had a habit every night of watching television, and instead of watching TV for that time, I want you to pray to me. And... And he does this for like 30 days or 40 days. And in the midst of that, his life becomes so much deeper in in God. And then on the final day of this season of consecration for the Lord, he reads a newspaper article about these teenagers who were accused of murder in New York. And the Lord says, I want you to go to New York. I want you to help these boys. And he was the equivalent of like a country pastor. And so he drove up to New York City, embarrassed himself at the trial. But through the course of him embarrassing himself, he gained like he got in the news, gained favor with the friends of those guys that are on trial, and he began a ministry to street kids in New York. And that ministry has now touched millions across the earth. And it was all birthed out of the simple commitment, I'm going to pray instead of watch TV. right? And so when we're talking about making sacrifices to the Lord, sometimes they're simple things. Sometimes they're, you know, di- what radical looks like is different from person to person. right? And so we see that here in, in Evan Roberts. And the fruit of his years of costly dedication was a mighty baptism of the Spirit. It says, The meeting having been opened, handed over to the Spirit, I was conscious that I would have to pray. As one and the other prayed, I put the question to the Spirit, Shall I pray now? Wait a while, he said, said the Holy Spirit. When the others prayed, I, I felt a living force come into my bosom. I held my breath, my legs shivered, and after every prayer I asked, Shall I now? The living force grew and grew, and I was almost bursting. Instantly, someone ended his prayer, and my prayer... My bosom was boiling. I would have burst if I had not prayed. What boiled in me was the verse of God commending his love. I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me. Tears and perspiration flowed freely. I thought blood was gushing forth. Miss Davies, Mona Nuque came to wipe my face. On my right was Mag Phillips, and on my left, Maude Davies. So he's in the midst of this prayer meeting. And he goes, for about two minutes, it was fearful, fearful intensity as God encounters him. And he cries, bend me, bend me, bend us. And what he said, what, what he wanted, why he was crying out, he said, what bent me was God's commending or the imparting of his love. And he had this radical encounter with God. For years, he just would faithfully go to the prayer meeting, and then there was a time that God visited him. There's more yet there describing the, uh, the encounters of the, 
of that season. I'll let you guys read those on your own because I want to close with this idea of the Ephesus revival. The Ephesus revival is described in Acts 19. The gifts of the Spirit were manifested there from the outset. The gospel was proclaimed through the whole region. Many experienced the fear of God and conviction. It says that in those passages, they took all their occult books out of the street and they burned them all. And the effect of this revival is described succinctly in, in verse 20 of Acts 19, where it says, The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The economics related to idol worship were disrupted in the region because so many had turned to the Lord. The silversmiths actually got upset because they said, nobody wants to buy our idols anymore. And they got angry with Paul and persecuted him. So we see in Acts 20 the manner of Paul's life. He goes, passes through Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem where he would eventually end up in chains and, and taken ultimately to Rome. And in Acts 20, it says Paul decides to sail past Ephesus and he's visiting his friends, and his friends come from Ephesus. Ephesus was inland, and they come to the closest port city. And he says, you know, and this is in Acts 20, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I was living among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. But I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus. And see now I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, Chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me, so that I may finish my race with joy, the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, I now know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed of yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. For know this, my departure, savage wolves will come upon you, not sparing the flock. And among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember, for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know my hands have provided for my necessities for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. Remember the words of our Lord. He said it's more blessed to give than receive. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all the words he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So, that whole passage, just consider the things that he said. He dealt with the plotting of the Jews. He didn't count his life dear to himself. He suffered with tears. He was emotionally invested in the work. He provided for his own necessities by laboring in his hands as he ministered. Without that commitment of an unusually devoted lifestyle described in Acts 20, we do not see the extraordinary results of Acts 19. And it says in that passage that handkerchiefs and aprons taken from Paul's body actually drove demons out of people and healed the sick. So it's because of his unusual dedication we see extraordinary results. And what's amazing is when you think about a handkerchief or apron, that's something that is anointed in the process of Paul working. You were an apron because he was likely doing his tent making work, right? So he's carrying such an abiding presence of God that as he's laboring in his natural work assignment to pay for his own needs, there's such an anointing on him that physical articles of clothing taken from his body, someone picks up the apron and uses it after him, 
and the asthma that they had gets completely healed. But the mistake we make is we look at the miracles that occurred in Paul's life. We say, I want the miracles, but we don't look at the lifestyle that produced them. And that's my challenge to you guys. Paul said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to have a habitation of God in Ephesus. And so he lived an unusually dedicated lifestyle. And in the midst of that, Paul did extraordinary miracles. So I'll just close. It's two o'clock. I said I would wrap up at this time. I'll close with this challenge to you guys, whether it's David Brainerd, 26 years old. No, 29 years old. Evan Roberts, 26 years old. Young people. Not like me. I'm an old man now. I'm a decade past those guys almost. These young people who lived in extraordinary devotion and God used them in radical ways. Paul the Apostle, extraordinary devotion used in radical ways. King David, extraordinary devotion used in radical ways. If you will devote yourself in in an unusual way, God will use you in extraordinary ways. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this grace was not just for the apostles, not just for King David, but it was for ordinary people, for missionaries and coal miners and ministers, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that this revelation of unusual dedication producing extraordinary results and how our dedication to God can create a habitation of his presence, Lord, I pray, touch their hearts in this room with that insight. God, I pray, mark them, Lord, with what the invitation of God is in this final season of their internship to consecrate themselves to you, surrender their hearts in a new way to you, to make an unusual commitment of dedication. And when, and when they stumble, when they fail in that, Lord, I pray, give them courage to sign back up again. Lord, I pray that you would truly give us grace. Give me grace like Paul the Apostle and like King David, Lord. Give me grace like David Brainerd. Give me grace like Evan Roberts, Lord. Give us grace to dedicate ourselves in an unusual way that you would do extraordinary things through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.